You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology. This call was recorded at 12 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, November 18th. Let's just check with Dr. Moore. Do you have any words uh, that you'd like to share with us before we get going? Um, no, I'll see where the questions go. I, I mean, the, we did this last minute just to discuss. I think a lot of people are probably um, wondering uh, both about the, the rapid test and um, and some other things, um, but I'll see where the questions go and then I'll probably chime in uh, about the rapid test if the first question doesn't hit on it, so. <laughs> I find that unlikely. All right, great. Thank you, Dr. Minna. First question. Hey, Michael, uh, congratulations. I know you've been tirelessly promoting this and uh, finally, uh, I guess a half a year late, we finally see some progress. Um, how much are these tests going to cost? And is this the best one, do you think, uh, or was there a better one that they might have EUA'd? Um, yeah, so uh, I, I would uh, I would say the congratulations at this point. This is a very, okay. very small step. Um, this is not really the kind of test that we need. This is, this is um, a symptom of continuing to treat this like a bunch of medical issues. And so we keep wanting this sort of medical precision, not, not even, I don't even want to use the word precision. We want, we want this to feel like the, the, that it's so completely um, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, well, I'll, I'll just explain the test. The test is a very expensive test. It's a, an extremely manufactured test. It's a test that simply cannot scale. It's like taking an expensive medical product that you might see in a hospital and putting it into somebody's home. Like th this, is, this is a symptom of like having a medical system that continues that treating to, continuing to treat this public health crisis like it's a bunch of medical crises that can get insurance reimbursements. So this is, you know, what I want to see is a test like this, this little thing that I'm holding here that can be made at 20 million a day. Instead, you know, the FDA wants to put out a lot of fanfare about their first approval of an at-home test, which while a fine test is really not much better than a laboratory-based test. In fact, it's going to be extremely limited. Uh, it's, it's really going, it's, it's so manufactured that it will be expensive. You won't be able to roll off the assembly line fast. And, and I don't think it will actually be available uh, widely in any way until spring. And you know they're going to be using it at a few places. It still requires a doctor's note, a doctor's prescription. Why, why in the middle of November does anyone need a doctor's prescription to get a COVID test? You know this is like we truly cannot seem in this country to get out of our way and recognize this as a public health problem. We still have yet to do it, and it's astounding me. So what I would say, to be fair to, to the test that just got approval, I'm glad that it is a very, very, very baby step for the FDA to, uh, to accept that maybe somebody can swab their nose in their home and put that swab onto a device that can read out a positive negative. But you know, this isn't much harder. This, this is easier, I would say than that test. And you know, this is a small little paper strip that is now being used across the world. 
and we still have yet to bring them here because we don't, you know, we, we just have, we just continue to not have any strategy in the country. We continue to be, uh, continue to have objections based on, on reasons that I've laid out over and over and over that should not be objections. Um, and we continue to say, we don't have enough data yet. We don't have enough data yet, but these things, A, we're in the middle of a war. We can't, we really can't get any worse than we're at at the moment in terms of the case counts and the way that this virus is spreading. So when people say, what if somebody slips by during, you know, who's using the test and it doesn't get detected? Well, 98% of people getting infected today are slipping by. And so in any case, I think it's a fine test. I'm sure it will work well. I think that lamp assays have a lot, a lot of promise, but this particular one is really very, very highly manufactured. It's got electronics in it, you know, and you taught, you throw those away every time. It's just like such an over, overproduced sort of American version of what we really need, which is just a really dead simple test. Do you have a follow-up? Yeah, um, I'd like to hear uh, why you think uh, the FDA and uh, the policymakers have gone so far off track, um, other than, you know, Trump is terrible, which is sort of a, a recurring meme almost everywhere. But, um, but also, just real quickly on the case count, so I talked to a T. Rowe a fund manager in healthcare um, who thinks it's 5X, the occult, the hidden, and you're at 10X. But in any case, just to cut to the chase, because I know we want to talk about rapid test here, but if there's 11 million uh, cases, does that mean 55 million? And if there's one, uh, 175K a month, does that mean 5X that or 10X that? And I'm just trying to get at the herd immunity issue, which I think is really fascinating. Nobody's talking about that. Thank you. Yeah, certainly cases are building at this rate. We will potentially eventually get to herd immunity if we really keep increasing exponentially, of course. Uh, but it won't be the way that we want to. I mean, unless I think I've said this before, you know, unless as a society we are okay right now today saying uh, that that we're okay with another two or three hundred thousand people dying. Uh, then okay, you know, and a lot more millions more, um, you know, longer term effects potentially. Um, then sure, let's go that way. If that's the, the societal decision we want to make. Um, okay, and, I'm not saying that. Obviously, I'm not saying that. But just, again, I want to get off so other people can ask questions. But um, how, like, if 11 million cases now known, how many actual people have COVID, have had COVID in the U.S. right now? Then I'll stop. Thank you. Oh, yeah. I mean, my guess is it's probably somewhere around... 50, 50 million or more. I think that um, I've been saying 10 million and, and, you know, I did, I was rethinking that um, this past week and probably overall it's somewhere, I'd, I'd be surprised though, if we caught, I, I think it's somewhere between five and 10 um, X versus what we're at. So, so it is, you know, we do have a lot of people who have been uh, exposed and infected at this point. Um, um, in, in terms of why, why I think that the FDA, I, th I think that we have, of a leadership, whether it's, I mean, the FDA in some ways, they're just doing their job and their job is to, to evaluate medical devices. Now, is it, the question is, is it the FDA's decision or is it the federal government's decision or somebody else to say that a test that is going to go out to people's homes, not for sick people, not for medical use, but for public health use, it's very unclear who needs to evaluate that test to authorize it. I think that there's no better place than the FDA, which is why I've been saying the FDA just needs to make a new pathway, but they don't seem to be imaginative enough to make a new pathway. 
And then we have leadership in a country that they don't realize they're leaders. Um, they, I mean, the number of people I've talked to who say, well, why isn't this happening? And my only answer is, is because you're not doing it, you know, because you, the leadership of the country, whether it's governors or federal government, um, is simply not acting. And I, I don't think we have a, a government and a leadership in this country at this point who recognize how to be leaders. I think that they that people are just following <laughs> at this point and, and not knowing what to do. And we really need to change that. We need to get our leadership to understand the power that they're in and to understand that they can take the bold step to move forward. So. All right, thank you, Dr. Minna. Uh, next question. Uh, hi, thanks. I'm following up on the same um, issue with rapid tests. Um, I, I guess I would ask one, um, you know, is there another country in the world right now that is using the kind of rapid tests that you're, you're calling for, you know, on a widespread basis? So, you know, have, have we seen that this can be done um, or, or, or would the US be doing this, you know, for the first time? And two, I mean, is the just to specifically get at the FDA issue, is it that they have this 80% um, sensitivity threshold? I mean, is that the problem? And that so far the tests you're talking about have not been able to clear that? I mean, I understand your your logic for why that maybe that's not necessary, but I mean, is that kind of the specific um, holdup here? No, the, the, so the country is that there, there is now evidence for it. You know, I would have liked the U.S. to be the, the first evidence for it. Um, why we, you know, there's no reason why the U.S. couldn't have been. We're living history now, so we can't just ask who's doing it. But Slovakia is doing it. Slovakia is doing it at a massive scale. They're trying to test around half of their population once a week, which is exactly what, uh, essentially what I've been calling for. And within a week, truly within a week, uh, they were they stopped their virus from exponentially growing on a country level to dropping incidents by half. Two weeks later, it dropped more. They're doing the third inf sort of infusion, if you will, of these tests, the third mass uh, testing program this coming this week. And you know, so the the I, I think it's the best proof that we have at the moment, anyway, uh, that this can work. I mean, I don't. This is just like so many other things, though. We know how it would work. There's a reason we, we do the work that we do as researchers to build models that can accurately project this. And right now what's happening in Slovakia fits exactly what we've seen, uh, what, we, what we expected from a publication that uh, we put out in June as a preprint, which will be coming out uh, in two days now. I'm sure many of you will get the press briefing um, once it's, un it's un under embargo though. Um, and, uh, the, the other thing is that we've seen this work over and over and over again right here in the United States on the in the places that are the most fertile ground for transmission, which are college campuses, I'd say. You know, college campuses, people are, you know, they're, they are very close to each other. They do all this, you know, whatever they do. But the point is, what, what the media is not reporting on on a constant basis is how many outbreaks are being averted right now on America's campuses. It's, it's so lovely for, for outbreaks to be uh, discussed in the media. You put it on the front page of, of newspapers when there's a big outbreak at, a, at an institution or at the White House, but fail every day to say how many outbreaks are being averted, whether it's by the White House frequent testing program 
or by every academic institution in, in New England that continues to have small numbers of cases and stamps them out before any of them become outbreaks. So we have so much evidence for this at this point. You know, we just have to look for it. We have to say, well, what are we not noticing because it's not interesting? And that's the hard part about public health. If public health works, it is completely boring. That's like vaccines. And now that's like these frequent testing programs. If you stop events from happening, it's boring. And so there's a lot of evidence for it. And, and, is, and is the issue the kind of 80% threshold that the FDA has? I mean, is that the main holdup or? Um, the, the, it's really unclear what exactly the main holdup is. No, I think, I think the, um, the Abbott by next now, you know, paved the pathway to show, oh, well, we can get around that 80% threshold by just, you know, recruiting people who are in the peak of their infection or who are currently infectious. I shouldn't even say the peak. So what Abbott did was they said, okay, we'll look at the sensitivity of these tests just within the first seven days of symptom onset, which is uh, the, win the window of infectivity as well. So it made sense because again, I've said a million times, these tests will only detect you if you're infectious and not if you just have residual RNA, like a crime scene. And so um, the really what's holding it up, uh, one of the major things that the FDA can't do is they, they because they're looking at this as a medical device and a medical problem, they make this distinction between symptomatic and asymptomatic use. But it's really hard to do the trials needed for the companies to find an asymptomatic person who's in the midst of transmitting because you don't have any basis to find them. And so almost all of the asymptomatic people we do find through our screening programs with our PCR programs, things like that, are post-transmissible. So then you have the New York Times report that these tests only have a 30% sensitivity in asymptomatics, but that was completely false. It's because the denominator was a bunch of people, 70% of the people were post-infectious. They only had RNA that the PCR could pick up. The point is it's very difficult for these companies making these tests to find, uh, to find asymptomatic people to recruit into their study uh, to get approval for asymptomatic use who are shedding virus at the time. It's really hard to find those people. Ideally, they're, they're in their home. If they know that they're infected, they're in their home, uh, you know, but they probably don't know they're infected at all. And that's the whole problem is that they're really hard people to find. And so, um, so that's why, I mean, if the FDA could take a step back and say, look, we're not dealing with a medical problem, we're dealing with a public health problem. They'd be able to look at these tests and they'd say, the tests work exactly the same regardless of whether you're symptomatic or asymptomatic. But this distinction they keep driving at is what's preventing these tests from gaining traction and actually getting uh, through the approval process because they say, sorry, you know, you don't have an, an asymptomatic claim. And for example, the first Access Bio just got uh, a test. So now there's Binex now and Access Bio, which are the two instrument-free paper strip tests that are available. The Access BioTest was approved with a nasopharyngeal swab only for clinical medical use, just like the Binex now. We can't, you know, we, can, we have to stop how we're authorizing these. Right now, it's just not working. Um, okay, great. Thank you, Dr. Mehta. Next question. Thanks very much. Uh, Dr. Mehta, I, I wonder if you could um, say anything about your interaction with Elon Musk over Twitter this last week, uh, where he was, seemed to be calling for uh, amplification counts sort of being factored into uh, treatment 
can could you just elaborate like on you stepping in there and, and what do you think of that idea? Thank you. Um, yeah, so just so you all know, I just um, had an op-ed in, in Time Magazine where I kind of lay out the, the pros and cons and how this whole plan can work um, in, in time. And so the link is right there in the chat. Um, so the, the, the conversation with Elon Musk, um, no, I think he, um, he got off on the wrong foot in terms of not understanding how to most appropriately use his antigen test, but you know, he's a very smart guy. I admire him a lot, you know, say what you will about his personality. I think he's one of the most brilliant people in the world. And, um, and so I would, would, you know, love to continue conversing with him about this because it's, it's important stuff and he's in a position to really help shape policy if he wanted. Um, that uh, the question he brought up was, should hospitals and others and, and these uh, labs really CT values? That's something I've been calling for, at least in the clinical domain, to, to use CT values to understand uh, where patients are at in terms of the course of their infection. And we should definitely be trying to use CT values to understand during surveillance, because people are positive on a PCR for so much longer than they are infectious, you know, two, three, four, five times longer then they are infectious. We should be interpreting the PCR values if that's what we're using. If somebody has a very high PCR value, meaning a very low viral load, then we should ask them to get tested a second time the next day. And if they remain at a very, very low viral load, a very high CT value, then 99% of the time, they're beyond their period of transmissibility. So do, do they really need to be isolated? And do we, need to, do we really need to be uh, contact tracing the people who they were with yesterday. And this is where we've just completely failed. All of our public health programs have failed as we're seeing. And this is one of the biggest failures. We just, we have not been discerning at all in terms of how we use the tests that we do have. Thank you very much. Uh, next question. Hi, uh, thanks for holding this. I, I found your comments on, on this new test um, clearance, very, very helpful. I was hoping, you know, just to expand on a question asked earlier, what needs to happen to have tests like this that can be performed at home available, you know, without a prescription, which I, you know, a lot of folks have talked about having something like a pregnancy test. Could you talk a little bit about that and, you know, what kind of timeline you're, you're expecting here? I know uh, it's been a point of frustration for you. Um, well, I guess it depends on, I mean, th this, um, what needs to happen is we, like, somebody in the government needs to realize that enough is enough. I mean, we know how well these tests work. We know how they can work. We, we, we know, I mean, I wrote the whole plan there. I've been talking about it for many months. Lots and lots of experts in, and people in positions of power are aware of it. Um, we're past the point of trying to, to do a statistical test and run another academic test to see if these tests can detect virus. We know they can. We have to get these tests out of this medical regimen. We need the federal government, the administration, we need Congress, we need senators, we need state governors, if, if the federal government's not gonna act, to just act, to act in the best interests of Americans. These tests could have allowed Thanksgiving to happen normally, had we started this in August. These tests can still, if we act appropriately starting today as a U.S. government, could still get us to have a much better Christmas. 
but we have to start today. We can't just keep asking when and hope that some company like Abbott or some small startup, why are we talking about a startup company creating a new test? Why are we even talking about it? This is a national, this is the worst national catastrophe that has happened on our soil in decades. It is destroying lives, it's destroying retirements, it's destroying the economy, it's closing down business after business after business. It's stopping us from going to Thanksgiving, it's stopping us from going to Christmas. It's, it's pausing our society. And yet we're sitting here actually having a discussion clapping about a very small startup company getting a new product on the market that will be available in April. Like, I mean, just really, why is it not on the front page of every single newspaper in America every day demanding action so that all of us can just go home for Thanksgiving? I feel like I'm one of the only people trying to actually act now instead of sitting on my ass and saying, I hope a vaccine comes out eventually. And I just can't understand it, you know? And so there are so many things that I can discuss about what needs to happen, but it's very simple at the end of the day, what needs to happen. We just need to act like we actually are in a war and that we're actually having something bad happen to America. I remember in April and May, when we were closing down, I said, I don't really think that people get it because nothing bad ever happens on our soil as a country. And I, I, it, was, it was in April, I think I was talking to Helen Branswell. And, and I said, you know, this is going to be a catastrophe because humans, because Americans don't know how to deal with even recognizing that something bad is happening to us. We have just such cognitive dissidence as a country and now it turns out our leaders do. And, you know, so I could go into detail about what needs to happen but, what, but really at the core of it is we need to have leadership at the state and federal level that are just willing to think about this as a war and put the resources in that it demands today. And we have tools, these are our weapons right now that can be available. I know that everyone is aware of them already. And we just need to stop squabbling over ridiculous things and start acting. This is why we shouldn't put academics, by the way, in charge of making decisions. This is a public health war, not a people war. We really need the military to be making these decisions. People who are de decisive, who can say, we have enough information, we need to act. Because if we don't act, we have many more people dying every day. But we haven't done it yet, you know, and, and so Every day, every week, I've gotten up here and talked about this. It does nothing, you know? <laughs> so. Um, do you have a follow-up? Um, uh, I did wanna just quickly follow up and ask, um, I know you've been uh, following the Elon Musk um, back and forth about his test results uh, for a couple of days now. You know, what do you make of, you know, his situation and how generalizable is, is something like that? Um, I'm just hoping you could clarify. He's talked a little bit about, you know, do you think he basically kind of 
took a test early on in an infection? What's your sense of, of what happened with him? This is, you know, I don't even want to speculate exactly what happened because I don't know if he was at the beginning of his infection at the end, but he probably wasn't in a position with a huge number of, with a, with a very high viral load. He may have been at the very beginning and uh, the virus, and, and we know that these tests can waffle in and out when you don't have a lot of virus. That's the same as any test that's ever been built in the world. If you're at the limit of detection of the, of the pathogen, then it goes in and out. So we just don't know. But you know, he what he needed to do was not use the same test four times, but you use one test and then you confirm with another test. This is why we call them orthogonal testing. And it's also why we need frequent testing. I don't really care that Elon Musk got four got four results at one time. That's not helping public health right now. What we need is frequent testing so that if if he was negative on day one, when he maybe should have been positive, that he would have found himself the next day or two days later as positive when he was really positive and he would have been able to, to know that he was positive then. So this is why it, we can't make inference based on single time points. That's how we've been dealing with this whole thing. We keep trying to tell somebody, oh, you got your PCR test last week you're good now. No, this isn't a PCR or an antigen test issue. This is why frequency of testing is the only thing that really can help people know if they're positive when they're infectious. This virus grows too quickly at the beginning to have to be able to figure that out unless you're doing frequent testing. And these paper strip tests, again, as far as I'm concerned, are one of the only tools at the national level that we could use to get frequent testing possible. So. I'll just say that I don't I don't know enough about his his uh, clinical scenario to to be able to say more. Thank you, uh, Dr. Bennett. It is twelve twenty nine. Do you have time for one more question? I can. I just I cancel my twelve thirty. It's okay. Okay. So uh, next question. Hey, hey, Michael. You can hear me. Yeah, yeah I can hear you fine. Great. Uh, th thanks for hosting this call. Uh, it's really helpful. Uh, I wanted to ask about your, your comment, you know, that the military should be making decisions here. Uh, Admiral Giroir, right, is kind of the testing chief within HHS. He has a military background. I know that at one point you were in conversation with him. Uh, I was hoping you could kind of shed some light uh, on how those conversations have gone, whether HHS has been receptive to, you know, your advice and your ideas here, and also whether you've been in touch with uh, anyone, you know, either on the Biden COVID advisory team or anyone in the, in the, next administration's team? Um, uh, I don't want to comment on any of the specifics. Um, I, I would say that I think that you, you're right. I mean, Admiral Juarez, um comes from a military background. I think um, my, my expectation and assumption is that there are a lot of people in the current Trump administration who would want to be doing more and be acting in a way that's very, very distinct from what um, from what President Trump is asking for and, and frankly demanding. And so uh, I, don't, I don't know why we haven't seen more action by some people who probably in their, uh, in their prior careers uh, as military people who had to act decisively to save Americans, you know, and to keep America safe. Uh, I can't speak much towards how exactly the decisions are being made today. But my guess 
is uh, I can't imagine that that many people who have had whole careers uh, helping America are particularly happy to have a celebrity uh, uh, celebrity TV show host telling them what to do and allowing millions of Americans to get sick and hundreds of thousands to die. I can't imagine it feels good, I suppose. Mm. And if I can follow up here, I know we're running up to the, the deadline here, uh, but you mentioned startups and kind of what the role of startups is here. Uh, I was looking, I guess it was about a month ago now that HHS announced, you know, almost, I think a $400 million award to Q Health. I don't know if you've looked at their products much. I know that they have aspirations to roll it out for at-home use. Uh, you know, are there any specific products uh, or any companies in particular that you're excited about in terms of actualizing this? Um, yeah, again, I think that we need the, the, the paper strips that come from Abbott, you know, I think, and SD Biosensor in Korea, Access Bio potentially, though I, I just got a package of them here. I haven't looked at them yet. Um, I, I mean, these are the ones that I want to see first. And then, I, I, and then I'm very happy to see some of these other lamp-based molecular approaches potentially serve as a different role, whether it's confirming these. So maybe um, every household has 20 of these and one of the, and a queue, or maybe every corner store or something in America has a queue that you know has a, a system that you can go and get tested with or every Walgreens and CVS, if you turn positive on one of these and you don't wanna confirm at home with a different one then you can go get a molecular test. But really, I think one of the best places for those molecular tests like Q, like Hamadeus, honestly, I'm not quite sure about this new one. Um, it wasn't even on my radar until last night. Um, it's, so I don't have much information on the metrics. Um, you know, I, I think that these tests are going to be, they'll really have a nice place, um, uh, for example, with what I call entrance screening. Um, this is a different type of screening than what I normally talk about, but this is to make sure that somebody entering into a location or a school or whatever it might be uh, is as safe as possible. They're, nothing's perfect, but is as safe as possible. And these, um, these sorts of molecular tests might be a good, uh, a good role, might play a good role in, in sort of getting people into nursing homes more safely. Um, but that said, I mean, even these, if you're doing them every day, um, you could do these twice a day for people in going in and out of nursing homes. And so... I think that they don't, they're not in, in um, odds with each other. They can really play off of each other well. And um, uh, I would say that Q, there's three companies that I know of that are, uh, that I know about the metrics of, and Q, Hamadeus, and Pine Tree are, are all doing really good work. Thanks, Michael. Uh, next question. Uh, hi, Dr. Mian, thank you for, for doing this. Um, so as far as I understood, all these um, rapid antigen tests need a um, deep nose swab to, to get samples. So are there any saliva-based antigen tests that work well and that are available? I think the saliva, I actually prefer, I mean, a lot of people wanted to use the like they got on the bandwagon of thinking that saliva is really the better approach. But, you know, taking a Q-tip in the front of your nose is really pretty simple and completely pain-free and it doesn't it's not a it's not a mid-turbinate it's really just an anterior narrow one um so I, I actually prefer those as public health tools i think they're really really easy they're quick but but there will be potentially i know sona nanotech in in um in canada is working on uh building a saliva based version of 
one of their rapid antigen tests. Um, you know, I don't know what role they would necessarily have. I, I do think saliva is good. Um, it's a little bit harder to work with sometimes, especially for doing it at home. Um, but uh, that's at least one company that I know of that's trying to, to go that route. And um, yeah, second quick question. Uh, you've been a vocal proponent of rapid antigen tests and many have wondered whether you have any conflict of interest. Although I'm sure you have been asked this already, but would you please clarify whether you have any conflict of interest? I have no conflict of interest in any of these companies, no investments. I just do science and try to help people. Thank you. Next question. Hi, can you hear me? Hi, a question, and I, I'm sorry, I just didn't perhaps understand uh, totally what you said about the Binex Now test. The State Department of Public Health here, just as you were going, starting your uh, event here today, announced that they're going to start being used in schools and that they had uh, done a test comparing them to PCR tests involving 1,600 people with, you know, enrolled at the Broad and Lawrence General. And, I'm still not understanding. You you don't think these are as good as rapid home tests? These are antigen rapid tests. I'm still trying to understand why you don't think these are as good, and you know the fact that the state is now going to be using them for schools. No, no. The the Abbott Binex now is one of these tests. This is a this is that's what I'm referring to. Same thing. Okay, so you you think that you you actually like these tests and think that's a, is a good move. One of these tests. To be using oh, oh, absolutely. Um, yes, underlying, you know, what I don't like about the Binex now is that it's um, what I would like to see. Uh, it, the Binex now is a little bit more manufactured than um, Abbott has uh, essentially the exact same test, but one, of, but one of these, it just goes inside this. This is cheaper and easier to make. Um, it can be scaled more widely and it's a little bit more intuitive to use it. Um, so, but they're not selling this version of the test in the, U in the US, they're only selling the Binex Now version, which if you've seen it, it looks like a little cardboard booklet. Um, both are very, very easy. So I think both, I, I, I would be very happy if, uh, if, uh, if they're used much more widely in, in this kind of screening that I've been referring to, whether it's at school or at home, you know, there's a role for both of those and you get the same effect. Um, the Binex Now though, I think it's going to be more limited in terms of its production capacity versus um, versus this, um, and so you know, I would like to see the pan. They had their other version is called the Abbott Pan Bio instead of Binex now, and the Pan Bio is working just as well as the Binex now. But again, the Binex now is designed specifically to be a medical device, and so it's a little bit more complicated to use and things like that. Whereas this, it's the same test, but this is really this functions as a True public health test. So that's the only difference. But, but to your question, um, no, the Binex now is exactly the kind of test that I'm referring to. I would say I think that um, you know I'm really I'm really glad to see that Governor Baker is starting to lead the way in using these types of tests uh, routinely um, in schools. I think it's a terrific decision. You know, so finally, we have an N of one leadership in the country who is really trying to push it forward. And I, I shouldn't just say an N of one. I've talked to the California leadership. Um, Mayor Garcetti of LA has really been trying to push and think through how to do this. So there are some, some leaders in this country and I'm very grateful and, and, and happy. And I think Americans should be grateful really that we are starting to see some people 
recognize the benefits that we've known for months. You know, that's why I'm so frustrated. We've known these same benefits exist for many months, um, but now we're really starting to see some action, I suppose. Uh, next question. Hi, doctor. Nice to see you again. Um, as you've probably seen, there are long lines for testing sites in Massachusetts, and some of those lines are telling us that they are getting tested because they're trying to clear themselves to go home and feel safe seeing family at Thanksgiving. You've kind of alluded to um, the erroneousness of this belief. And I do wonder, what would someone have to do to appropriately clear themselves to go visit family? And at this point for Thanksgiving, is it too late to do that? Um, I don't advocate for using these devices as clearance per se. Um, I think that they can be to decrease odds. So if you're gonna go home either way, which many, many, many people are, then having one of these tests at your, uh, uh, but uh, having access to one of these tests is one of the best things you can do to make sure that you're as safe as possible to do that. But getting a test on November 18th for Thanksgiving a week later is nonsense. I mean, the test, even if it's positive right now, you could, you know, that, that would actually, in some ways, if you're positive right now on a PCR test, I mean, I, this is, I'm not making a recommendation here, but it would almost be the opposite. It, if I would actually feel more comfortable if I, let's go back a little bit more time. If it was November 15th, and I knew that I was positive on November 15th, I would actually use that as a positive confirmation that I'm actually particularly safe to go home for Thanksgiving because I would, my body would, I would know that by that point, I'm very, very unlikely to be transmitting the virus. So we're doing the testing too early. And the reason people are doing it too early is because access isn't there. So what I would like to see is these tests, but the benefit of these tests, again, is not to just, this is the most important piece of all of this that I think people have really had a hard time getting. This is not to make each individual event safe. If we use these with the right strategy at the national level or at the state level, we drop the prevalence of the virus at the entire community level. That is the best thing we can do to get people to be safe, to go see their family or go out to dinner, is not to have a, a roaring uh, epidemic going on and just take a test like this to gain entrance in, the best thing is to get rid of the epidemic. That is the best thing, and that's what these tests can do. That's why epidemiology and not medicine are so important here. If we don't start thinking like public health epidemiologists to tackle this, and we continue to treat it as individual events, we're gonna keep clawing one by one at an outbreak that's going up exponentially. We need to focus on the outbreak, and we, we need to, you know, really focus on this as a true public health issue. And only once, we've, once we tackle that and we use the right tools to tackle the outbreak, then all the individual cases begin to resolve. This is a public health event and not an individual you know, health event that we're dealing with. And so, but you know, we're not there yet. So I'm gonna answer your question. And the answer is getting a PCR test today does not make you any more safe by Thanksgiving. It just doesn't doesn't make you any more safe. In fact, the only way it will change things is if it's positive, maybe it suggests that you might be safe on Thanksgiving. Um, if people had access to these, I would say one of the safest ways to use these or one of the most effective ways to use these 
um, isn't, I would rather use one of these the day of Thanksgiving than get a PCR test the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. I'll put it that way. These can be much more powerful to give you real-time information uh, when you need it. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hello. <clears throat> Hi again. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm asking questions from a European perspective, I guess, uh, what you said about the US uh, applies to a certain extent to Europe. And I was very interested in hearing that um, Slovakia used this uh, home, home testing. I, I never heard of it. I also looked for this information on the website, but I, I couldn't uh, find any, any information. Uh, Slovakia decided to make a mass scale testing. And uh, I would like to know what kind of uh, homemade testing that they're using, which is the company which is producing it. Uh, I actually am not positive of the company they're using. Um, to be honest, uh, I, sh I should figure that out. Um, I'm trying to see if I can drop a, an image into the chat here. Oh, I guess I can't. I was hoping I could. I wanted to show you all a picture of what's happening in Slovakia. Um, uh, I'll try to find, it's on one of my tweets that I sent out last night. Um, so I'm not positive what uh, what tests they're actually using, to, to be honest. Okay, but I, you're sure that they, that, that, uh, they decided to uh, allow people to do home testing? You're sure about it? No, no, so Slovakia is not doing home testing. They're being a little bit more top-down. I don't think their version would work in America. Um, they're having people come to a site to get tested and they're giving some incentive. To me, I think what would really, um, what would really uh, work uh, in the US is not to have a top-down sort of public health approach. It might work in Boston and LA in some places, but what we really need in the US, I think, is to make this immensely, um, uh, uh, immensely sort of uh, uh, accessible and easy to use and get it into people's homes uh, you know, immediately. I think that that's the best way that we can do it in the US because a lot of people, they don't wanna go out of their way. We have long lines to do anything and people don't want the government in their business in a lot of ways. And so um, if we can do this without that, that's better. And mailing everyone, like I, what I would like to see really, I would like to see the US government either produce the tests on their own, they could start doing that tomorrow or really work with companies uh, in the US and abroad to just produce 20 million of these a day, package them up into groups of 20 into little bags and ship one to every single or every other home in America would just get a little bag of these tests. That's it. Um, you know, and they come with instructions. It's very clear. They come with voluntary reporting. This can be done in the, around the world too, not just in the US. And so, um, you know, that's, I think, a, a really good approach that, um, that we should be taking across the globe. Okay. So you feel that um, European government should go the same way? I mean, as, as you see, uh, Europe is facing a, a second wave, which is uh, almost as uh, crucial as, as the first wave. There is a lockdown again. Italy is having a record uh, death uh, per day. So do you think that uh, European countries uh, uh, use this kind of test? They could have uh, preserved their uh, contact tracing and uh, avoid what is happening now. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the really nice things about this type of test I think Nicole is about to put the um, the graph, the the link to my tweet from Slovakia about Slovakia in the chat here. Um, the really nice thing about this plan, where we have ready access to very frequent testing, is we can actually get rid of contact tracing, in large part. We don't even need it. This is just a. Uh, this has been something that we 
um, have just assumed we need. But if everyone's already testing themselves every three days anyway, then you're going to get people tested even before they get a phone call from a contact tracer to go get tested. So this actually deals with so much of the overarching structure that we would need to have to tackle this virus in a uh, traditional public health way that we would normally tackle virus like this. And to be very frank, we don't, we've never actually shown that contact tracing um, without really, uh, a, without very, very strong buy-in to social distance and mask, we've never shown that contact tracing for a virus like this can actually be that useful. In fact, all of the evidence so far points to the fact that it's not working. Um, and I'll give you one example, which is that Massachusetts probably has the best contact tracing in the country, has some of the best testing in the country, and has some of the best, uh, uh, the, the best approach to where the citizens are actually following public health directives. If contact tracing and the tools that we had worked, it would have worked in Massachusetts more than any other place in the country. And we got cases, we said that we needed to get cases very, very low to make contact tracing work, we did that. But you know what? We still have exponential growth and massive numbers of cases now. So that, that's why I just feel so strongly that we have to stop across the world. We have to be realistic and reevaluate, learn from our mistakes or learn from what we know, which now what we know is that in many countries of the world, the tools of the past aren't working for an epidemic that spreads through the respiratory system. It, uh, it is fast moving. It has a generation time of somewhere about five to six days and everyone is more or less susceptible. We never really asked the question, does contact tracing actually work in this situation versus Ebola or TB and things like that? Just a question, your research that you're going to publish in two days is going to provide evidence that uh, home testing testing can help curbing the infection rates and contagion. Well, it's um, it's it's modeling uh, work that we put together many months ago to form the foundation of a lot of what this plan uh, calls for. And we've seen that it can, now we're seeing in Slovakia, we're seeing on lots of college campuses. Hopefully, we'll see in Massachusetts. Although just doing the students may not, um, we'll we'll have to see what role it plays. Um, but it was it was theoretical work that showed that this plan can work. Okay, I would like to, to see it. If you maybe you can send it to Nicole as well, I would like to see it. There's a, there's a preprint out on it now. You can take a look at it. Um, it's called test, test frequency is, test sensitivity is secondary to frequency and turnaround time. Uh, Nicole can probably put the link in. Okay, thanks a lot. Sure. Uh, next question. Hi, Dr. Minna. Thank you again for doing this. Um, I wanted to ask, so in Ohio and I think some other states are taking this line as well, governors are applying curfews, except what's unique about Ohio is, is it doesn't apply to businesses. It applies to citizens. There's a 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. curfew. The governor said it really won't be enforced. So I, I just wonder what you think about the strategy and whether it's effective. I mean, it seems more like a messaging attempt than an actual curfew, although it does happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm not convinced that curfews are, are doing much. Um, it's really based on this idea that people go out and drink and, 
and um, and that's when they spread the virus the most. But you know, I'm not. I, I think that that does happen. But people also go out to dinner and take off their mask and can spread the virus a lot. So uh, I, you know, what maybe would be more important is to limit. Uh, the number of people that can go into a bar and, and not worry about the curfew, for example. Um, but the idea is that if people are getting drunk, then they're uh, then they're going to be acting uh, disproportionately, you know, out of line with public health. And so, um, you know, if if society is okay with it, I think there's it, it will probably help a little bit. But I don't think that it's a it's a real game changer anywhere. Yeah, I, I also wanted to ask if you have any thoughts on this. It seems like there's a practice of just kind of using some of these unenforced orders more as messaging tactics than actual policy changes. And if that if that works or if that just contributes to the fatigue and burnout that has been pretty well established. Yeah, I this is I completely uh, yes, the latter is what I think. If we're going to have messaging, we should have messaging around things that actually are really effective. Um, and that's where I think we keep messaging and keep doing things that aren't effective, as we can see. You know, I'm, I get very frustrated with um, with other people who are who are calling for things like, you know, just keep demanding the same the same thing over and over and over. At some point, you have to say, okay, you know, we're seeing that it's not working. We're not doing a root cause analysis. To understand what's really going on, but we just keep pushing the same thing over and over, and I, and I just think it becomes numbing to people. And we really have to, if we're going to create policy and message, I think we should create policy and message things that work, that people can actually do, that aren't going to put them completely out, you know, having to go sit in a in a line for two hours, or have to stay home for fourteen days just because somebody they walk by in the street. You know, was in, was infected. You know, we have to think about things, meeting people where they're at, and that's what the the Time Magazine piece that I wrote, you know, really goes into detail about that. We have to meet people where they're at and start rethinking all of how we're dealing with this, including the messaging. Great, thank you. Um, I, before we move on to that, I just want to, um, you know, I I I get, uh, I mean, I'm visibly very very frustrated. Um, but I want to thank everyone, all of you, like you're obviously here trying to give good information. So I was saying something about the media before, but um, you know, I'm just frustrated at, the, at our country's response. So I want to thank all of you for actually you know, being here practically every week, a lot of you. So we can go thank to the you. Next. Okay. Hey, uh, you, you mentioned uh, at the state level, and, and I'm curious, I deal a lot with state government, and when I bring this up to them, they, they, they kind of make it sound like their hands are tied uh, by, by federal rules. What, what can they do, and, and what should I be asking them about how to effectively get these tests out there and, and use them uh, at the state or local level if the federal level is, is kind of, uh, from what you're saying, kind of inhibiting it from the FDA Call a state of emergency. Use these tests off, you know, that these are not medical tests. Heck, I mean, this test that I'm holding here, uh, you know, if it only gets FDA approval or authorization for being used in a doctor's office, um, you know, that's probably, you know, it's a, a state can buy those and say, you know, we're going to use it off label as surveillance, as screening tools. This is not a medical problem. 
And so these, a governor can call a state of emergency and make these rules. You know, you just can, they, they don't have to be, at some point you have to uh, work, uh, you have to just fuck the system if the system is literally causing your constituents to die. Um, and that's what it is. And I don't think the governors realize that or that maybe they do, but it's, it's not exactly leadership to me if they say, well, you know, we realize Trump's not great. We realize the federal government's not acting, but our hands are tied. So we're gonna let our people continue to die. That's what's happening right now. But this is not, you know, nobody's gonna sue this a state if they start distributing these to their residents and message them appropriately. I promise nobody is going to sue a state for it. Um, so we just have to start acting. Don't call them a medical device. Buck the system, say this is not a medical device, therefore it's not even clearable by FDA. Just change how your la the language around it. There are so many ways to get around the system right now, if it's truly the FDA and the system that's stopping it. But then the other thing that the states need to do, if they want to do this, they need to build the test. They need to work with companies that can build them. You know, I don't know why uh, a state governor has not put $500 million into, uh, into building, uh, or not even, you know, it wouldn't be close to $500 million to really build up a, a factory that's enough to just provide tests for that state. You could do it on practically a shoestring budget compared to what this is costing states. And so work with a smaller company if you want and say, hey, we need 200,000 tests every single day for a state like Massachusetts. Uh, can you do that? And lots of companies can make two to 500,000 tests every day for a state like Mass. And so we could be doing this across the United States without the federal government. So then the simple answer is this is absolutely available at the state level. Absolutely, states can absolutely do this if they wanted to. If they wanted to, exactly. If they wanted to. Yep. Thanks. Uh, Dr. Minna, that is our last question for today. Do you have any other thoughts you'd like to share with us before we go? I think at this point, I just want to encourage anyone who has a voice that people are listening to. I really think that we are seeing a failure of leadership because leaders just aren't realizing that they are actually in a place of, of power. And the more we can encourage them to, to recognize that they have tools at their disposal, that they have avenues. I'll talk to any of them. I've talked to a lot of them, but it doesn't really get the point across, I guess. Um, but I'll continue speaking with them about this to let them know what tools they have, what tools they can get, and how they can bring this type of thing uh, about so that a state like Massachusetts or a state like Ohio or any other state in this country can drop their incidents and stop having people die. Um, you know, they have, they really, the power is within them to decide to act uh, without the federal government. And I don't think the federal government's going to be acting before the end of January. So we should probably have been trying this months ago, but there's no time like the president to get them on board. This concludes the November 18th press conference.